Welcome to Curva Mundial. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Curva Mundial. I am your host, Sal Bono, and today my next guest is taking us to the world of Venezuelan soccer. He is one of the co-hosts and founders of Footve English, which is the Venezuelan football site in English, a 2020 nominee for Best Alternative Media. Please welcome to the show, Caracas and Southampton supporter, Jordan Floyd. Hello, Jordan. Hey, thank you very much for having me on. I want to start off with football in Venezuela. You're coming to us from that beautiful country. So what is football like in Venezuela? Yeah, so uh, obviously my my background and, and where I spent the first 26 years of my life, 27 years of my life was was England. And, um, you know, when when you live in England and, and English football is is all you know or predominantly what you know and you're used to the rest of the world idolising your league, um, you very naturally end up having sort of like a one-dimensional view on, on what football is and, and how football is, uh, particularly like the game on the pitch. But I've always been more interested in in what goes on around football than, you know, the, the game itself. I love I love playing football and, uh, you know, I, I watch a lot of football for, for my job. Um, but I think it's, it's one of the least interesting things about the world of football. I'm, I'm far more interested in, you know, the cultures that emerge around football, why football is so important to, to culture and community and, and the world and uh, the, the impact football can have. And coming to, to Venezuela, which I did for the first time in 2019, uh, was a, a real, eye, real eye opener. It wasn't the first time I'd experienced uh, a different football culture. Um, my, my dad's half Spanish and is, is a big Barcelona fan. I've, I've been to Spain and, and seen football there and Growing up, my my granddad, who's from Mallorca, you know, would, would watch Spanish football and, and talk about Spanish football. And when I was 19, I, I coached for a summer in Germany and and there, you know, with, with kids. I was I was young myself, but I was coaching, you know, teenagers five, six years younger than me. And, you know, in training games when they needed someone to go and goal and, you know, I volunteered going and goal, they're like, no, 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 don't go and goal. Like English goalkeepers are terrible. And, you know, they had their their own nicknames for what an English goalkeeper is. Um, and you know all these things you you experience, uh, and it opens your eyes more. And in Venezuela, my main reason for for coming to to Venezuela in the first instance uh, was because I was writing a book about Venezuela and Venezuelan football. And um, you know I've often said like the idea of the book uh, was really it was a it was a book about Venezuela masquerading as a, a book about football. I wanted to write a book that would be like equally at home in a bookstore in the you know geography section politics section and football section and you know maybe even travel um i one of the biggest compliments um about the book is that i had was that people that weren't football fans being able to read and enjoy the book and and for me that's a big part of, of what football is it's not just like a list of scores and you know match reports it, it's its place in the community and what's interesting about venezuelan football um at the moment although it's not young it, in the sense that the the league first went professional in in 1951, so you know it's a, a lot older than MLS, for example. Although you know MLS isn't the first soccer league that you've had in the states, um, Venezuelan football is is still in a state of immaturity, and I don't say that in a in an offensive way. I say it in a sense that it is still maturing uh, and it's developing. It's I think it's an exciting time for Venezuelan football and to to be in Venezuela as football is growing because 
it's growing in importance in the community. It, its place in society is, is growing more prominent. And, you know, those things that exist around football, like, you know, in South America, the, the barra culture, the, the, the ultra culture, as you, you'd say in, in certain parts of Europe, is, is also uh, growing in importance and growing in, in scope. Um, so Venezuelan football at the moment, uh, like I said, is growing, but it, it, that presents its own challenges. So one thing that's happening at the moment is for the past two seasons, literally almost without exception, unless there's transmission issues, every game is, is televised live on TV uh, for free. So it's, it's on the state. It's on the state TV channels. Most games end up on YouTube as well, so people overseas can see it. Um, Goal TV stream it worldwide, with the exception of the United States, uh, but you can still get it on YouTube. Um, So that's a great thing in terms of visibility because it means now, like, you know, six, four, five, six years ago, Venezuelan League wasn't on Instat, for example. Its coverage on Y Scout was minimal. So from from a scouting background and from, you know, the professional background, Venezuelan football's visibility was very low, whereas now, you know, like I said, every game is, is shown live and the kickoffs are, uh, in, until the like final stages, the kickoffs are, are staggered. So, you know, it's not like, oh, there's two games live on at three o'clock, but I need to choose which one I watch. I, I did it for the best part of a year and in the past nine months, I've still done it to 80, 90% capacity where possible. But like, if you want to, you could literally watch every single game. Uh, so they'd have games from Thursday to Sunday with, um, you know, two, sometimes three games a day. So I, my, my weekend or my long weekend was just watching literally every single Venezuelan football game. Um, the, the downside to that, and particularly where Venezuela is as a country, is in around 2016, 17, football attendances started dropping, um, you know, you only have to go back to like maybe the early 2010s to see video footage and photos of packed Venezuelan stadiums. And like the biggest stadiums here in Venezuela are around the 40,000 mark. And these stadiums would regularly fill. Uh, since 2017, which was probably the, the, the darkest and lowest point in Venezuela's recent history, wow. um, attendance has completely dropped. You had year-long riots. Um, you know, I think that there was times where the football season was was postponed for short periods of times or games were cancelled. Um, and Venezuela is still recovering from that. And when I first came in 2019, going to a game would cost either nothing at all because the entry was free or maybe a dollar. Um, and that means that a lot of Venezuelan football fans in the past five years have got used to football being a free product. But even when it was free to go and or and or very cheap to go, like a dollar, uh, stadiums were still nowhere near full. Like I'm talking a thousand people max in a 23,000 stadium. Wow. Because there were other reasons for, for people not going to the game. Um, you know, safety, um, worries, but if the game ended once it was dark, um, you know, how do I then get home safely or parking issues? And then you had the gasoline issues with, you know, long queues at the petrol station. So people weren't willing to like drive to the game and drive back. So they'd have to rely on public transport, but public transport's a mess. Um, so there were, there were contributing factors. Now, in 2022, five years on from 2017, when in, in Caracas, at least, and, and a few other major cities, things have improved. Um, they're not fixed, they're far from perfect, but they have improved. Um, 
the numbers are recovering, but still incredibly low. Uh, and one of the reasons I put that down, well, two reasons that I put that down to is firstly, you've created a culture where people are expecting the product for free or very cheap. So then right. suddenly asking for $10 a ticket, people are like, nah, I could go for free a year ago. Why would I now pay $10? And secondly, every game is live on TV. So you don't even need to leave your house to watch your favorite team. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting situation. And then coupled with that, Venezuelan football, the Venezuelan football fan, the majority of them um, are sort of like in a love affair when it comes to football. Like Venezuelan football is like their dependable wife that's, that's always there. But most of them have an est- a mistress, which is European football. They also support Real Madrid or Barcelona or Inter Milan or AC Milan or Liverpool. Um, and sort of like Liga football, they sort of just ticks along in the background. And yeah, I'll watch it if it's on or kind of thing. But it's, you know, it's just there and dependable and reliable. Um, and and that's another problem. Uh, so so Venezuelan football in this instance is it is is growing in participation. It's growing in quality. Um, but what it really needs to do is is grow as a product. Um, and that's not something I like talking about because I'm a football fan first and foremost, and and a quite a romantic football fan. And you know, describing football as a product and you know how do we sell it and how do we grow it is is. You know, uh, it's a conflicting conversation for me to have because it's not how I see football, but I appreciate its importance and it's something that has to happen if, if Venezuelan football is going to um, improve, um, you know, for example, reach its first World Cup, which, you know, it's yet to do. Hopefully 2026 will be it. So, yeah, I think in terms of like a, an introduction to Venezuelan football and where it is right now, um, that's, that's sort of that, really. Wow. Uh, there's so much to unpack in that. Also, you and I are very similar when it comes to the romantic idea of football and what football is and what it can do, uh, which is beautiful. And all, again, really great always to find like cool, like like-minded people in that aspect, because sometimes you just feel alone in it because in America, everything is a product. And now in Europe, things are more and more of a product you're seeing investment bank banks buying full-on teams so to hear that there's still romance in a game that is being so inundated with cash and marketing that it's like oh you're not alone in this sal this is great uh there's jordan in caracas who uh shares that similar view there are like two things i want to touch upon uh number one when the game was free or a dollar was it because it was subsidized by the government? Like someone's got to pay for it, right? Like there's that famous line that you hear in every economics class is no such thing as a free lunch. So is uh-huh. someone pay for that? Like who pays for that then? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't in, it wasn't directly subsidized by the government. It wasn't like a, a policy or anything, gotcha. uh, but like you, you know, in a way um, you could say like many, many clubs here um, one way or another are, um, you know, state sponsored, whether that's because they're owned by the the local government, the local council, um, or because they're they're sponsored by a you know a, a state owned company. Like you know, quite a few of the clubs here are sponsored by or have been sponsored by. Um, it's less so now, but in the past ten years or past twenty years, even been sponsored by PDVSA, the the national oil company. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, obviously, it's, it was a financial choice to to not not charge um and obviously that cost has to be absorbed uh, and you know obviously the club are paying for that they're losing revenue by by you know ex- having those tickets for free and you no know, even two weeks ago it was the the league of football final 
um, it was Metropolitanos, the team based in Caracas, which were only founded 10 years ago. It was actually their 10-year anniversary this year um, against Monagas, a team from, from Maturin, um, you know, more or less 300 miles away, I think, um, which have like, they have like a, a 40,000 capacity stadium. Um, the El Olimpico, the Caracas stadium, Caracas Bay Stadium, where the final was hosted, is a 23,000 capacity stadium. And um, its main stand, the, the Tribuna, was near enough full. Um, I think they announced, I think they announced the final capacity for the finals as 10,000. But like the, the rest of the stadium, so everything apart from the main stand, um, was fairly sparsely populated. To the right, where the, the batter of Caracas Football Club um, always have their fans. Um, the the Caracas batter were actually in attendance, not supporting Caracas because they weren't there and not in colours and not making a noise and, you know, without their drums or whatever. But, you know, they came in and watched the game. And then on the far side, you had a sprinkling of, of, of public attendees. And on the right, you had about maybe 50 travelling fans from Monagas. Um, but the, the Tribuna, which was um, had Monagas fans in as well, um, but like probably Caracas-based Monagas fans and, and family of team, uh, and and that kind of thing. The Tribuna, I'm actually curious as to, you know, how many um, paying fans were in that Tribuna because it was full and that probably accounted for maybe maybe seven to 8,000 of the total. Um, but I'm, I'm genuinely curious as to how many were actually there as paid spectators. Like, for example, I attended um, in a journalistic capacity, so I didn't pay for my ticket. Um, there were a heavy number of Metropolitanos um, family members there and friends. All the youth categories were there. Um, so a lot of that main stand was basically packed out with, with journalists and people within professional football. Um, but that was because, like I said, Metropolitanos is a young club. It's only 10 years old. Um, in 16 teams in the top Venezuelan division, um, this season four were from Caracas. You know, so 25% of the league from the capital. Uh, so Metropolitanos competing with Caracas Football Club for fans, which they're never going to steal. It's just like, you know, maybe they get the, the next generation, which is what they're doing. They're building a very much community club and all of the youth players and all of the youth teams are very much involved in like the brand of the club. They're competing with Deportivo La Guaira, um, which is actually a team from a neighbouring state. But because of geography and having to go up and over the mountains, they play their games in Caracas, as do the baseball team. Uh, they're only 12, 13 years old, and they have next to no football fans. And then Uceve, which is the oldest team from Caracas, uh, it's the university team. They won the first ever professional league. You know, they've got a solid fan base um, of, of university attendees, basically students, people that have worked at the university for many, many years, that kind of thing, and, and an older generation of fans. So... That was one reason why the capacity for the final was low, purely because of the teams that were involved. Last year, the final was De, uh, Deportivo Tachere, uh as the visitors and Caracas Football Club as the hosts. So the, the fiercest the fiercest rivalry in Venezuelan football and um, and two teams with perhaps two of the biggest three or four fan bases as well. So that was, I think, closer to 15,000 out of 23,000. Um, so it's still a problem with paying for tickets. Uh, a season ticket here for Caracas this season, which included a shirt, was around $110. And that included the Copa Libertadores games as well. So it was... Wait, wait. I'm sorry to cut you off, but it's like, 
and I know economics is different everywhere, but it's like, yeah. but at the end of September, Jamaica played a friendly against Argentina in New Jersey at Red Bull Arena, and the cheapest ticket was $110. A friendly, mind you, game that didn't mean anything. So I, I just, I get so envious that how uh, much the game costs outside of these borders. I, and, and it can still survive. That's the thing. Venezuela is proving that it can survive. It might not thrive in the sense of the Premier League, but it's surviving and it's bringing in, and again, there's fan bases, there's, there's people that are excited by it. <sighs> yeah, but like something you said off mic before we started recording about, you know, you mentioned maybe by the time this goes out, Messi may have played his last game for Argentina. Um, I was lucky enough to see Messi live in 2014 for Barcelona when I went to um, my my now wife actually took me to to Barcelona for my birthday and we watched the game whilst we were there and I just for me I was actually at the time more uh, more excited about seeing uh, Puyol before he retired. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought ah it's probably the only time that I'll see Messi live. That's fine by me. Uh, but actually one of the things that coming to Venezuela meant I've ended up doing, which I never expected, is last year um, Venezuela hosted Argentina in the World Cup qualifiers and I I saw Lionel Messi live for Argentina for five dollars. My ticket was five. (laughs) And I had I literally like the day of the game, I had um, people like offering me a free ticket because they had a spare or something. But I, I wanted the ticket purely so I could have a, you know, the ticket to keep forever. But yeah, I saw I saw Lionel Messi live in, in Caracas, which is something I never thought I'd do. Mate, the next time that happens, give me a buzz. The plane ticket will cost me as much as it would be to see him here in New York. So I'll, I'll, I can get a vacation out of this. This is great. I'll take uh, that free ticket off. <laughs> and if Joe Biden is, you know, if Joe Biden's going to do what perhaps he's suggesting he's going to do and, and reopen direct flights, then, you know, yeah. you can choose. I just, oh my goodness, that is, I mean, good on you and hooray for you and hooray for everybody in Venezuela. That is unbelievable. And I, uh, everything is so expensive here, uh, but that's a whole other podcast. Uh, but what what now the elephant in the room is, you came to Venezuela to write a book uh-huh. and you've stayed. So what has anchored you in, the, obviously the weather is a lot better than it is in England. The food I'm sure is great. Uh, so what has given you an anchor in Caracas? Yeah, so I first came in, in 2019. Um, and at the time I was like a, a freelance journalist as like a, you know, as a side job, basically. I'd always, I'd been writing for 10 years at that point, um, but but always, always freelance and when I was, you know, when I was at college and looking at, you know, university, my sort of my two career pathways that I was hoping um, would would materialize was to either primarily and firstly, I wanted to work in a professional football club in some capacity as um, as in performance. Sports psychology was the area that was interesting me the most. Um, I was I was never going to be a, a professional football player. I had at 16. I could have um you know pursued a semi-pro pathway but I was I was always more um more likely to you know I was never going to make a career out of that I was never going to earn me enough money I would have been 
you know, doing something menial alongside playing football. And then I would have got to 35 and like, well, what do I do now kind of thing? So <laughs> I, I, I wanted to go to university. I wanted to get a good job. I wanted to be a professional football in one way or another. Um, and my backup plan was, well, I do sport, a sports science degree. I specialise in sports psychology. I do my coaching badges at the same time. And if, if that falls by the wayside and doesn't work out, I can always do like a master's in journalism and become a sports journalist. And I'd already been writing for two years at that point. And I was going to continue blogging and freelancing for websites. So sort of that was my approach. And um, I ended up uh, getting a decent salary in, uh, in a job completely unrelated to football. Um, but it was writing, it was report writing, it was data analysis. It was it was interesting enough, but wasn't football. But I was thinking, you know, it's still teaching me the skills that I could transfer to football at some point in the future. And I, was, like I said, I was still writing. And then um, I'd always had this like, you know, bucket list dream of, of writing a book, but I was never going to sit down and brainstorm ideas for a book. Like if I was going to write one, it was going to come naturally. Something was going to, you know, infuse me to write a book. And um despite following Venezuela as a country since 2012 and its football since 2017 because of their performance in the under-20 World Cup where they reached the final and played England, um, I'd, I'd always avoided writing about Venezuela because it's such a polemic topic. And as a freelance writer, you don't want to alienate, basically. I know it's a, perhaps cowardly and, you know, journalists should be the beacon of, you know, telling their truth. But at the end of the day, I was, um, you know, also wanting to transfer from freelancing to full-time writing. And I didn't want to alienate people, um, particularly in this this climate of self having to self-publicize on, on Twitter and social media. It's very easy to, to just lose followers, I guess. Um, but then in 2000, beginning of 2019, I decided, you know, actually, screw it. I'm going to write about Venezuela. Um, you know, this generation is really interesting me. Um, so I did. I, I wrote an article at the beginning of 2019 about Christian Casares Jr. actually, who'd been at New York Rebels for about a year at that point, mm-hmm. uh, was able to line up a, an interview with him um, over over WhatsApp and that his move to the US and the generation he was sort of coming from, that under 18 and under 20 generation that played in the South American Championships in the same year was like the, the foundation of the article and sort of like, you know, this is a promising generation um, and sort of digging them up for what comes next and then the day before my article was set to publish on these football times um venezuela played against argentina in spain and rafael dudamel who was the head coach of venezuela at the time uh welcomed juan guaido who was self-declared president and recognized by certain countries but not the actual president sent a dignitary to the national team in spain his his Spain ambassador and the national team like welcomed him and had photos with him but under the strict instruction that it wasn't to be used as publicity and then like you know, a few hours later those photos ended up on Twitter and Dudamel offered to resign um, from his post wow. the editor quite understandably he said um, you know we need to make reference to this and I'd in the whole of my article I tried to avoid mentioning politics because it was a football article there was no need for it in the same way that I still, even to this day, when I get asked or when I pitch a story about Venezuelan football, um, been, like really banal to me, I always get asked, oh, can you include a, you know, a paragraph or two about baseball? No. Why? I'm writing about football. Like, but understandably, on this occasion, the editor said, like, you know, we, we can't ignore what's happening. Can you put a bit in? So I did. And I, I wrote one 
what at the time was perhaps a throwaway line. And for a little while um, afterwards, I was a bit embarrassed by the line, but actually it turned out to be correct. I, I can't remember word for word, but I basically said that Juan Guaido self-declaring as, as president had, had basically, you know, led to nothing other than his own self-promotion, which three years later is pretty much, I, I'd stand by, is pretty much spot on. Um, you know, perhaps he succeed in getting um, negotiations with the actual president, Nicolas Maduro. And I'm not saying that in a political sense, but the actual president, Nicolas Maduro, he may get, you know, negotiations and open dialogue with him overseen independently, but he hasn't really achieved, uh, you know, what he set out to do, which was to, to somehow position himself as the actual president, blah, blah, blah. And after that article, I got contacted by, or through social media or comments, or whatever, a lot of people from Venezuela and Venezuelan football um, sort of just commenting, saying it was really nice to read about Venezuelan football in English. It was nice to read something positive. Um, but one comment that I picked up on, which was 90% positive, um, ended that although he liked the article and whatever, um, the, the, the comment about Guaido was a bit throwaway and maybe a bit insensitive. Um, so, you know, I, I contacted the guy and we spoke about it and I, you know, I apologised, like I said, because at the time it was, maybe it, I understood maybe it was a naive thing to do. Um, and that guy is Dominic Bosonio, who I now co-host, co-run for Bay English with. We're now really, really good friends. And it all began on him quite rightly picking me up on, you know, a lazy sentence, I guess. And now we're really good friends, do for Bay English together. He lives in um, Duluth, which I believe is near Minnesota. Um, and he's, although born in the States, Venezuelan parents, and he co-runs for the English with me. And off the back of that article, like I said, had a lot of people reach out and some of those people were basically saying it would be nice to see more about Venezuelan football in English. If you'd like to do another article or if you'd like to interview anyone, let me know. I've got plenty of contacts. And over the next couple of weeks and months, I ended up amassing quite a lot of contacts and quite a bit of material. And I just thought, I think I've got the basis of a book here. Um, and that's what happened. And then the book published in, in 2020. And um, basically off the back of that book, I, I I didn't know if I'd continue, you know, other than watching from a distance, continue to have any involvement in Venezuelan football or whether I'd ever write about it regularly again. <laughs> but off the back of the book, um, it basically led to more opportunities slowly in Venezuelan football. And, and predominantly that was um, agents, some clubs directly, some scouts contacting me and asking me about Venezuelan football. Some had read the book and some had just seen the book be published and, and instead of, you know, reading the book, just wanted to pick my brains. And what happened in 2019 when I was in Venezuela, which embarrassingly happens wherever you go as a, an English guy, uh, despite doing nothing to earn it or deserve it, you get treated with respect. People hear that you're English, they hear your voice. Um, and especially like when you go to Venezuela, they're like, you're crazy. Why are you here? No one comes here at the moment, particularly not the English speaking world. You just get given this respect. You've done nothing to deserve it, nothing to earn it. You're just given it. And at that moment, I was just a freelance journalist. But I had um, academies, professional clubs, directors of football, coaches, players saying, hey, can you help me in Europe? Or, hey, there's a really good at this academy. Can you help them with that? And I was I was too embarrassed to just say, I'm nobody, I'm not involved in professional football, I'm just a journalist and, you know, not even a, I'm not even here on commission, like I'm here because I want to write a book kind of thing. I was too embarrassed to say I was nobody. So I did that very polite thing of saying, hey, I'll take your number and if anything arises, I'll, I'll get back to you. Um, and some of those people became good friends and I just stayed in contact with them socially. But then after the book was published, 
the reverse happened. Like I said, I had people in Europe and the US agencies, clubs, start contacting me and asking me about Venezuela. And slowly I was able to like, you know, start joining the dots. And then in early 2021, I uh, intermediated my first football transfer. I helped a Venezuelan player move um, to a club in, in Iceland. And then I was getting asked by agencies to write reports on Venezuelan players and make my recommendations. And, um, you know, a lot of them were, were, were good because what I said would happen sort of happened. I predicted these players were good and that they were going to get bought by, you know, clubs in Europe or MLS in the next six to 12 months. And these things kept happening. Um, and I just thought, well, I want to work in professional football. It seems like I'm quite good at this, but the English was doing well. It had been gone, it had been going for nearly a year. Um, so my wife, um, we wanted to emigrate to South America. My wife got contacted um, by the British school in Caracas, offering her a job. She's a teacher. Um, so we came out in, in August 2021. I was unemployed for two months whilst I tried to find work. And then I worked for a US agency for nine months. I uh, got commissioned by Copper 90 to make a documentary about Caracas Football Club. And um, sort of, yeah, just quit my job in London and, and came to Caracas to try and make a go of it. And you're doing it. I'm doing it. Yeah, you're it's, doing um, it, man. Yeah, it's not like financially. I was I was far better off in London. I won't lie, <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it's the beginning of a new career. Like you know, I'm only been doing this in an employed manner for like a year, um, and I'm young, and you know, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. So like, it's the it's the beginning of something. That's that's incredible, man. What a cool story. What a wow. Be proud of yourself, man. This is awesome. This is really really cool, man. This. You are, what you're doing, I think, is deep down inside what every football fan wants to do, is be the expert and initiate those, like, that expertise, then put it into motion. Like, this player is so good, you should sign him. And then also, by the way, if you want to pay me a commission for that, that's great. Like, like yeah, that's, yeah. that's the greatest. Also, by the way, to have a player from Venezuela go to Iceland, what an amazing juxtaposition that is. I, you know, that is, that's far, that's a whole different world. Uh, one of my favorite places on the planet is Iceland. So yeah. it's, uh, I've, I've moved three there now. Um, wow. one, one is still there. Um, a left back who I think, you know, potential for me, na potential national team quality because we're, we're short of left backs in Venezuela. Um, certainly at like, you know, the elite top end. But um, yeah, and then secondly, like I've moved quite a few Venezuelans and hopefully more in the near future to um, the USL. Um, so yeah, yeah. but like, like there's a lot about agency work I, I hate, I, I, you know, I don't like. Um, and like, you know, the, the perception of, um, well, one of the first guys I worked for an agency, a guy, uh, an American Iranian who um, I respect a lot. We didn't, didn't see eye to eye on many things, but you know, I respect him a lot. And one of the things he he said, which is sort of stuck with me, is that like, you know, agency is a bit like the the used car business and it does you no good to trash talk your competitors because you just give everyone a bad name. Right. Like that stuck with me. But I will say there are good reasons why the general public have a bad view of, of football agents. And I would much rather be working, you know, for a club um in in scouting and analysis or that kind of thing than 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 being seen as an agent i i'm working for an agency um but like you know 
Another thing is the, the good agents are really good and the good agents do a lot more work than the public thinks. Like a lot of them are basically acting as, as scouting departments for clubs and a lot of the top end agencies have their own scouting departments. Right. So it's a really fascinating eye-opening thing. You know, you touched on it earlier, but when people think of Venezuela now, it is a social uprising and political upheaval in the country that has made headlines larger than anything else, um, mm -hmm. especially the football. I know we talked about it in the pre-interview, but I remember being in Colombia in early 2019 and many Colombians calling Venezuelan refugees, their brothers and sisters in arms, saying, telling mm -hmm. my wife and I that you don't, we don't need to like the politicians. In fact, we don't, but we need to love the people. South America is like one big family. The Colombians insisted that, you know, that no matter who we spoke to, no matter where in the city of Cartagena we went to and in the suburbs of Cartagena, that's all we kept hearing. And especially in a time where it seems as if everywhere in the world is pushing refugees away, here was a country that was welcoming them. And I thought that was just gorgeous. But yeah, yeah. what is that country like now? What is Venezuela like now? What has it has things tempered off? Have things like calmed mm -hmm. down a bit? It, you know, and is, and is because maybe there has been a change, if there has been any, um, is that why you know we don't hear about it as much? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll I'll get into all of that, and I think there's like you know three or four separate issues to address there. But going back to like your experience in Colombia, you know, 15 years ago, more or less. Um, maybe a, a few more years more than that. Um, you know, Colombia had the most displaced um, population in the world, and and now I believe that is Venezuela. Um, but you know, the, the you know the shoe was on the other foot, for lack of a better expression. Many Colombians were coming into Venezuela as as migrants and uh, as refugees. And you know, prior to that, the the border between Venezuela and Colombia was like you know not. It's not the right phrase to say not respected, but it was it's fairly meaningless. Like, you know, there was there was easy flux, you know, going back many, many, like hundred, hundred, hundred and fifty years, like it was one big country anyway. Right. Um so particularly the border towns, even now, like very much here or there kind of thing. Um, you know, in, in San Cristobal, um, in the state of Tachara, which is a border state, Venezuelan side, they use the Colombian peso as a, an accepted currency. Um, so things can be quite fluid. Um, but yeah, we Venezuela is a country. I, I, I say we have had it, but obviously I'm not Venezuelan or anything. But um, the situation was at its low point in 2000. Well, the recent history of Venezuela, the, its low point was 2017 with the year long riots. And um, it's curiously, when I first arrived in 2021, having not been there for near two years. I, I saw a lot in Caracas. I'm, I'm going to talk exclusively about Caracas um, from here on in because, um, you know, commenting on, on the, I'll comment on the countrywide situation, but take most of what I'm saying is purely Caracas because that's where I live and that's what I'm experiencing. But when I came back in 2021, I'd noticed a lot had improved. Um, some of those things were, were superficial, but other things were very real. Um, for example, the legalization of the dollar changed a lot of things because when I was here in 2019, the dollar was black market dollar, um, wow. which to crushing the contributed to crushing the economy. When I was here in 2019, in the space of three weeks, when I arrived, I was like Kevin, who is now like my best mate here. But Kevin, who was at that time purely a you know translator for me and a, and a guide, if you like, 
um, I was like, this kid's a math genius. It's incredible because he could like divide, give him like any number and he could, he could times it by 18. I was like, who knows there are 18 times tables? And then he was doing it into the thousands. He was timing, timesing things by like 18,000. But I know all you do is add a few more zeros, but this was crazy. He's doing it like a calculator. Um, I thought, oh, this is really impressive. And he's like, oh, it's because the $1 is worth 18,000 bolivares, the local currency. And then two days later, I was like, nah, this kid is a math genius because two days later, he was doing it with like 24 and 24,000. And, um, you know, I was having these conversations and in the space of three weeks, the exchange rate went from 18,000 for $1 to 24,000 for $1, reached a high point of 36,000. So double the, on the day I arrived. And then when I left, I think it had come back to 24,000. And that was all in the space of three weeks. It, the, 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 the exchange rate doubling, going down again, going up again. It was crazy. Um, now, in the in the first 12 months I was here in Venezuela, since I've moved here permanently, um, the dollar to Bolivar has pretty much, had pretty much stayed stable at 5.1. They chopped the zeros off the currency just after I arrived um, to sort of re revalue the economy. Or, well, sorry, revalue the currency. They knew um, you were coming. Let's be honest. They knew you were coming. They said, Jordan's <laughs> coming. Let's chop a couple zeros off and, you know, keep so it stayed, stayed stable. But then when me and my family went home to England for the summer, which was just for six weeks, when we came back, suddenly the, the Bolivar was like just over 7.1. Um, so it had gone up by like two Bolivares more than before. And then two or three weeks later, it had gone up to near enough eight. And I was like, oh, is this, you know, is the economy going to tank again? Um, and basically what it was is sort of every year, um, regardless of performance and financial performance, um, government-owned enterprises, and I think private businesses are also obliged to do something similar, but government-owned enterprises give out bonuses to everyone. Um so everyone just gets like, you know, an extra, I don't know the exact amount, but everyone just gets a, a bonus in their monthly salary, which has a knock on effect on, on the economy. Um, and like I said, I think private enterprises are obliged to do something similar. Um, and that was just that. And it sort of stayed, it's sort of stabilized again now for the past month or maybe six weeks. It's been just over seven or, or just under eight. Um, it's, it's a bit here or there. And then I'm trying to back, value the pound to the dollar because the pound's tanked as well basically a dollar now whereas always used to be 75p to the dollar um so the situation in venezuela right now is honestly particularly in caracas it's improving but it's not fixed um and there's been like a running joke on social media um for a while now that like people saying when something bad happens in caracas or something bad happens in venezuela people say oh but venezuela's fixed um and it's not but it would be silly to ignore the fact that there are improvements. Um, but it's like, you know, who do you credit for those improvements? Nobody wants to, nobody wants to, and I'm not saying is, I'm not saying is the, the government's to the government's credit, but nobody wants to credit the government. Um, no one, uh, it's, it's very hard. Like things are improving, but why? And, uh, and it's not improving in a consistent manner across the country. There's still parts of the country where the queues for petrol are still 12 hours long, where there's still daily uh, power cuts. Um, and there's still a huge, which is the thing that frustrates me the, the most about being in Venezuela. There's still people that um, are 
you know, I know a guy that works 40 hours a week and gets paid $40 a month. Like it's wow. mental. Whereas, you know, a, in, again, different parts of the country, the prices differ, but like, you know, where I am in, in Caracas, um, you know, a, a loaf of bread, which is a very English way of describing the economy, a loaf of bread is like $3. And you've got people earning $40 in a month. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like you've only got 13 loaves of bread for your month, and that's just food. That's without having to cover any of your other costs. Um, so it, it's strange. Venezuela at the moment, I think also I'm not an economic expert and I'm not a political expert either, um, but it's like there's a, since the more so since the dollar legalised, um, it, it's essentially like, um similar to cuba in the sense that it's like a a, a dual currency economy gotcha. if you're yeah. if you're if you're earning in dollars and you're being paid in dollars you're probably comfortable probably comfortable probably having an uh a, you know uh a, an okay life at the minimum if you're paid in the local currency um bolivares um even if they physically pay you in dollars. But if you're, you know, the salary on paper, your contract on paper is in Bolivares and you're being, you're employed by um, local government or, or central government, you're, you're essentially living, well, you are living in poverty, wow. extreme poverty, because you're only earning $40 a month kind of thing. Um, so there's a big split um, in, in, in people's wealth um, between, and it, it seems to me, that that basically comes down to whether you're paid or have access to dollars. So another thing is, you know, there's um, there's a lot of culture, there's the, the, a strong culture of Venezuelans that have left sending money back mm -hmm. to Venezuela still live here. Um, and now, like with the connectivity of the internet and, and everything, people that live here but are earning an external source of income, like they're they're working remotely for computer companies or call centers or online that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting and very delicate situation when it, when, when that, um, when, when you speak about that, when you speak about the economy and, and people's source of income. Yeah. Because it always seems as if when things are like this, when there's such an economic divide, it's a razor's edge that at any given moment, it could just go either way. And, you and, you know, hearing that you know, people are surviving on $40 a month or barely surviving. It's, it's just, it's you, you, I'm surprised there's not more riots in the streets, you know, but at the same time is that if that's what's common things down, it's only, you can't fathom what it was like before that then, you know, like that's the thing. If that's, if that's there, the baseline. Still, there are people still leaving Venezuela right. um, on a daily basis in, in large numbers and, some people have said to me before, like, um, you know, Venezuelans have told me before, like, I ask a lot of questions every day to, to you know, try and continue to understand more. Um, they, some say that, you know, say two things. Some say there's a lot fewer riots because, um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the people, particularly in, in major cities like Caracas, a lot of the people that were the worst off and the most affected have left. Mm. Um, you know, normally in, I think in any exodus in the world, it's fairly safe to say, I don't think this is a blase comment, that like the worst affected, the poorest um, leave first. Um, and others have told me like, you know, a lot of the, a, a lot of um, criminals or petty thefts or people that were forced into crime out of desperation have left. Um, and another thing that another society, another 
subset of society in Venezuela, people from that subset have told me that, um, you know, this this government has been in power for so long, like the very late 90s, uh, this particular president since 2013, so long that um, the people that are, are well off or middle class, the people that aren't affected on a day to day basis by the bigger issues, because everyone's affected by certain issues in Venezuela that, you know, not even money can escape, mm-hmm. but the people that are fairly comfortable, fairly well off, are just like indifferent to the government now. Like they, they, they sort of accepted he's not going anywhere anytime soon. Right. Accepted that things are better, at least if you live in Caracas or a city like Caracas. Um, so they're just indifferent to it and sort of ignore it. And one thing, another thing that's worth mentioning, and even Bloomberg has reported on it in the past six months, I think, is you now have Venezuelans returning to Venezuela, um, mainly middle class and above, um, people that uh, have property here to return to, to live in, um, people that have business outside of Venezuela, have external sources of income, but, but Venezuelans are also returning. Um, and not just the Caracas, I know Venezuelans that have returned to, to other areas of the country like Falcón. Um, so yeah, and then I think another touch point um sorry my answer really long no um, it's, great. it's great i, I left venezuela I, again i said to you before we started the podcast i left venezuela a couple of weeks ago to go to a mate's wedding in cyprus so i flew from caracas to istanbul and on the flight out of caracas which was like a midday flight um i felt like the most venezuelan person on the plane like it was a load of russians and portuguese and eastern europeans that had come to venezuela some were diplomats, like I, you know, saw diplomatic passports and what have you, and 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 some were journalists, but a lot of them were a lot of them had come here for a holiday. Um, tourism isn't huge in Venezuela at the moment at all, mm-hmm. but fiber islands or the, the big islands um, in in Venezuela, like Margarita, um, and I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently there's even direct flights at the moment from Margarita to Russia. But loads of Russians and Europeans um, are coming here for holidays, um, and then on the flight back. Um, like a week later, like from Istanbul to Caracas, I'd say it was a fairly even split between Venezuelans who were maybe coming back from a holiday or coming to visit family and foreigners. And again, um, there's not many foreign journalists here in Venezuela at the moment. Reuters, as I arrived, Reuters took their office out of Venezuela right, right. after a long, long time. There's not many journalists here at the moment. So, you know, those foreigners are here for for other reasons, be it business or, or tourism. You know, now you're the reverse though while people are leaving you're going in to live so what has been the what has been your experience in terms of acceptance have people accept as you said you know there was a bizarre bias privilege that worked in your favor having an english speaking accent that it opened a ton of doors for you that normally probably wouldn't have anywhere else but you know not anywhere else, but some other places, but it worked in your favor. That tipping point happened for you. But has it been that, oh, well, here's this guy coming in and he's probably going to make a decent wage and he's not Venezuelan. What the fuck? Like, you know, like, yeah. wh- wh- what about me? What about me? Um, was that, did you get that? What Do you get that on on a regular basis that happened to you like you know hey you're not from here and it made it very difficult for you to find um settlement if you will um 
yeah, so overall, like I say, 99.9% of my experience here, you know, at least to my face, maybe people, you know, chat shit behind my back, maybe, I don't know. But like to my face, overwhelmingly positive. And curiously, the most negative thing I had was actually before I came. Um, and I was very particular about who I told that I, I was coming to Venezuela before I came to Venezuela. I didn't really want people knowing I was I was coming like um, I, I because I was coming with my wife and my kids as well. And, you know, my wife's family in particular, but also people in my family were a bit like, what are you doing? Why are you going to Venezuela? This is a terrible decision. It's not a safe country, blah, blah, blah. So I kept who I we were actually telling to a, to a minimum. Um, and I then sort of kept a low profile in, in Venezuela for the first couple of weeks I was here anyway. Um, to, you know, so my wife could settle into her job, my kids, you know, my daughters were only, when we first arrived, um, one was two and a half and one was nine months, two wow. girls. I, I, you know, I wanted things to be very calm. I intentionally wasn't going to do any work for the first month, just so my wife and my kids could settle first, um, because they'd never been to Venezuela before. Um, so yeah, that's what happened. But, um, I think the fact that, um, you know, a lot of people in Venezuelan football, and I stress football, like, you know, in the context of the country, I am nobody. But like in Venezuelan football, a lot of people knew me um, for at least a year, if not two years. Like Football English had been um, a reasonable presence in Venezuelan football for a year. Um, you know, we got nominated in the end of year awards for, for best um, alternative media. And when, when they use the word alternative, what they mean is not a club account. Mm -hmm. So like at the end of the year, the, the awards, which are hosted by a radio station here, um, it's, it's not the official awards per se. There's not really been an official gala for a few years now. There was a start season gala at the beginning of this year, but the radio station that hosts the awards, they gave out, there were two categories, one for best club media, basically, and one for best alternative, which probably translates better into English as like independent. Mm -hmm. um, but the English had been a good presence um you know before i came out to venezuela i was um i was did a video interview for new york red bulls which was published on all their socials um i'd broken a few transfer exclusives i'd already made a few transfer moves um and i'd been here in 2019 so some people i'd known for, for you know for even longer for two years before i came out here um so that that helped us settle um and I made a big point, even if no one knew about it, even if it was just for my own um, conscience, I made a big point, um, and to this day, of, uh, until September of this year, I've made a big point of not earning any of my money from Venezuela. Um, oh, wow, okay. I, my, all, all the income I earned was from external sources, so like, you know, the Copper 90 Commission, or I was working for a US agency, mm -hmm. um, or I was doing things independently. I wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't earning money from Venezuela or within Venezuela. And then the first, the first time I did a bit of work for a Venezuelan football club back in the summer, they've still not paid me for. So I'm still not taking them. Um, <laughs> September, I caveat that. In September, I got, um, you know, headhunted for lack of a better word by a Venezuelan agency. So now I do work for a Venezuelan football agency. Um, so. Yeah, I that was a, a conscious decision. But I think the fact I came here in 2019 and 
things like little things like for me what I love about football that I think maybe helps I don't really think if people have a perception of me I don't really concern myself with that but I think maybe perhaps things I do naturally helps like I bought a season ticket for Caracas when I could have just gone as a journalist and I I'm not part of the battle um and like I I have very strong opinions on what constitutes a football fan and what constitutes a supporter Mm -hmm. um you know I'm not a Caracas fan per se I support Caracas but I think there's you know, that's another conversation entirely. But, you know, I stand with the fans because um, I love it. Not just, it's not posturing or anything. I love it. I don't want to be sat with the journalists like I'm at the theatre, like with my arms folded, watching football like it's a, a performance. I want to be with the fans living it. Perhaps not even paying any attention to the game. Like, you know, chatting, singing the songs, enjoying the atmosphere. Um, I think the fact that I put myself, I don't have a comfort zone. Like, life is my comfort zone. Like, the fact that I put myself in situations where other people think, oh, he's probably outside of his comfort zone here, I think helps. Um, you know, certain people that I consider my friends now, and hopefully they do too, like, you know, I, I, I don't take my rings off and lots, like on my wedding ring, for example. And a lot of people have said to me, like, you probably should, like, you know, if you're ever on your own or something, you could get robbed for that or something. And I've had friends tell me, like, oh, if you weren't my friend, I'd, I'd be stealing your rings. Um, so wow. I, perhaps the fact that I'm I'm friends with people that I wouldn't have been friends with if I hadn't come here in 2019 as a journalist, spoke to all elements of society, all element, all elements of football. I think that gave me a, a a a very organic, a very natural, um, wide base to sort of my my social and professional life here. I mean, it's such a you live in such a awesome tale man like that it's just great just yeah and I, love, I, I love your conscious decision of just you know what you're and how and how you earn your income I, it's difficult obviously but it's still it's still a very cool thing to do you know it's and i'm happy that you know the kids and your wife are adjusted like that's awesome you know one thing that we've we keep talking about economics it just keeps money keeps coming around because i guess money it's the only thing that matters in this sport these days uh we're trying to change that you and i but you know one thing that is interesting to me is that when i look at the players that have left venezuela whether it's you know joseph martinez uh uh rincon uh rondon you know, players that have left, I you know, the, it's, it's the immediate and gone to play in other countries. It's, oh, it's probably because they can earn a higher wage. Uh-huh. You know, but when I look at the lineup for Caracas, nearly 95% of the entire team comes from Venezuela. So how important is it to have Venezuelans play in the league, but also make up a majority of the team in an era when so many clubs around the world are hardly represented by the country in the league that they play in? Yeah, it's... um it's a valid point and it's a point that the league the league have addressed in a in um in a very controlled way so back in like the, the 70s for example um you know some clubs if you were a venezuelan couldn't even get into even if like you were top and even if you were top you would then be paid even if you were the best player top in in the pit on the pitch you'd still get paid considerably less than the foreign players wow. um, and, you know, I, I spoke to like a, a legend of Venezuelan football a couple of weeks ago for the, for the English podcast. I think it was actually our last published podcast, Che Che Vidal, who's now lived in the US for a long, long time. 
Um, he was really prominent in USA hosting the World Cup in 94. He's involved in the organizing committee. He uh, founded FIFA.com. Uh, he was a Venezuelan professional football player in the 70s and 80s and then went stateside and played college football and, and you know, was in uh, whatever you call them, all-American teams at college mm -hmm. level. He then came back to Venezuela to try and, you know, continue his professional career. And um, he was a very, very bullish guy, very, you know, headstrong in a good way. And, um, you know, he had contract negotiations with the club and, um, you know, knew that he was being offered a lot less than the foreign players who were, to be honest, not near his level. When he spoke to a player a bit older than him that he respected and looked up to at another club. And, um, you know, he was basically told, like, you know, you're never going to get the money you want. Um, you know, there's just a two-tier system here where locals are going to get paid less than foreigners and you just have to accept it. Wow. Um, but then over time, um, you know, fast forward to, say, 2007, where Venezuela hosted the Copa America, that year a rule was introduced where Venezuela, all teams in the Venezuelan leagues had to have one under-20 player on the pitch at all times. So if he was substituted, it would have to be for another under-20 etc that stayed in from 2007 to the beginning of this year this season was actually the first season where that rule was scrapped wow. um but it had for me it had people argue over it but for me it had demonstrable results um before 2007 um venezuela hadn't won a game at the copper america for like 40 years um in 2007 they got out the group stage um, in and this happened in the women's side as well. The rule, although the average age of women's football was already incredibly low, um, but then from 2007 to 2000, and let's go 2020, you had Venezuelan youth teams um, getting to finals on the men's and women's side. Like I said earlier, Venezuela got to the under 20 World Cup final, lost one 0 to England, had a penalty that they missed earlier in the game. It could have gone a different way. The women's team at under 17s reached consecutive semi-finals. Um, You've then had a lot of that generation on the men's side go to Europe, where Walker Farinas at Lons, Daniel Herrera, owned by Man City, on loan at Girona at the moment. Um, Sergio Cordova had years in the Bundesliga. He's now at Real Salt Lake. Um, then you've had stars, although his time in MLS was short-lived and, and a bit controversial, but Jefferson Soteldo played a couple of Libertadores final with Santos. He's now back at Santos. Um, and then when it comes to the foreign aspect, Again, up until the beginning of this year, Venezuelan clubs were only allowed four foreigners um, in their team and only three were allowed on the pitch at any one time. Wow. At the beginning, they upped the numbers by one. So now you're allowed five foreigners on your roster, um, but only four are allowed to be on the pitch at once. Uh, but then in the reserves league, which is an under-23s league, and in all the youth leagues from under-13s up to under-20s, no foreigners are allowed to play at all. Um, so it's uh, it's a very domestic um, setup through academy, whereas, you know, it's probably the same in MLS um, in, in US, but, you know, English Premier League academies are flooded with foreigners. Um, you know, even though you're not allowed to sign an under 18 technically um, from another country, you know, academies are, are flooded with foreigners. And then as soon as they hit 18, flooded even more so. Um, but Venezuela's needed this rule because... Without it, you know, every country needs the rule to an extent. But, you know, without it, Venezuelan football would not be developing the amount of players that it has to if it's going to improve and going to qualify for a World Cup and the national team is going to strengthen. Um, so it's, it's 
it's worked well, but it can still be better. But similarly, and this is something I'm really interested to in doing um, on a personal level because it motivates me and interests me, but also on a professional level because I want, A, I want to, and B, I want to be seen to actively helping Venezuelan football grow within itself as well. I don't want to just be someone that gets Venezuelan players out of Venezuela and transfers them. And a lot of my friends joke that, I'm the English guy that moved to Venezuela to help Venezuelans leave Venezuela. I also want to strengthen the league, not with, like with ideas as well, which I'm trying to do with my, my agency, but also by bringing higher quality foreign players to the league. Because um, although you don't want too many because you want to strengthen your own, by bringing in higher quality um, foreigners, you're bringing in an exchange of ideas. You're bringing in different football cultures. You're bringing in different practice. Also, that level helps raise the level in general. And it frustrates me massively. There's reasons for it, and I'll go into them a little bit. But um, it frustrates me massively when um, a Venezuelan club signs like a player from like the fourth division in Brazil or like the third division in Paraguay right. or like the second division in, in Honduras. And then you so often see midway through the season or sometimes even after two or three months, these foreign players get released because like clubs haven't done their scouting properly or the player can't adapt to Venezuela or the players are simply not good enough. Um, and then I've not been doing it long, but obviously like I, like I said, ambition is to like bring high quality foreigners here and bring different foreigners here. Like, you know, 90, 90, 95% of the foreigners that play in Venezuela are other Latin Americans, predominantly South American, but then a few from, you know, Central America. Like there's a few Panamanians, about 10 to 15 Panamanians last season here. You get the odd player from um, other Central American countries like Honduras. Um, but yeah, 90, 95%. In recent years, there's been like a mini influx of African players, which Caracas. I know, yeah, because I saw that Caracas had a lot of play or a, a lot by Caracas standards from Nigeria, which I was, oh, this is cool. Yeah. All right. Currently, all of their foreign spots are occupied by African players. This season, they had, um, they began the season with. One Nigerian, one Nigerian Beninese, one Ghanaian, and then halfway through the season they signed two more Ghanaians, eighteen-year-old Ghanaians as well, from that have never they've never played professional football, um, from the same agent as the other two Nigerians. So the Ghanaian is now left and he's not coming back. He had a good three seasons here. Um, but the the four Nigerians or the three Nigerians plus the Nigerian Beninese uh, are all from one agent, who curiously is an English guy as well, but he doesn't live here. He um he's English Turkish and lives in Istanbul most of the time, but he took the sporting director to Nigeria in March, I believe. Um, and you know the director of football from Caracas picked these eighteen-year-old kids, you know, with his own eyes to then bring to Venezuela in June. But Caracas sort of trendsetted in that. It's not the first time Africans have played in Venezuela, but again in the nineties it was heavily at Caracas right. also. But Caracas have sort of trendsetted in recent years to do that. So you know you've had other clubs sign African players but um, it's probably still at maximum. Academia Pratico Bay have two, Estudiantes have one and the one that Estudiantes has has been here for the best part of seven years um, it's still only 10% of the total foreigners and what I want to do is is bring Europeans and English speaking players here. I'd love to bring an English player here. There's never been an English player that's played in Venezuela before. There's not been an English player um, to play in Copa Libertadores before there's been one who's Turkish but English-born, Colleen Kazim Richards. I think he played Sudamericana for Corinthians. Um, but like, these are the kind of things I'd like to do. But I've spoken to some club owners or 
people in power of clubs and they're worried about bringing an English player here, for example, because they're worried about, um, firstly, they're worried about how they're adapt to Venezuela because of, you know, the issues that Venezuela inescapably has. And secondly, and, you know, I sort of admire their honesty a little bit, but also it's quite sad and a bit of an indictment of Venezuelan football. They've said that they'd rather bring other Latin American or African players because they're used to a lower quality of life or a lower level of facilities. Whereas if you bring an English player or a European player, they're going to come with English or European expectations of the facilities, of the care the club will give them, that kind of thing. Um, so a couple of clubs, I think, are essentially scared or don't want the responsibility of, of having a European or an English player at their club. Yeah, but that's like such like... Um such an inferiority complex though because it's it just you know you can get for instance like after world war ii a lot of italians left for better lives mm. settled obviously in the states or in england or uh and it came to venezuela um i have family friends that were born and raised in venezuela before they came to the states and they are from like nearby villages from in sicily where my dad is from so it's kind of like it's it's still an attractive place and it's an exotic place and i think that you know if i mean i don't know it's just an idea that to sell the idea that you know this was once a haven for italian and italian i'm just speaking exclusively to my culture like yeah yeah. it, it could be you know it could be quite attractive i think that's also you know i've seen some of the practice facilities in Sicily, they're either state of the art or they're like I, I I've seen pitches in third world countries that are nicer. So it's sort of like there's that bizarre juxtaposition. Um, so I think that it it can still be sold. It can still be you know an attractive place. Uh, and again, this might just be me romanticizing it, but it's an idea to you know think outside the box and sell it and just get get people from the Venezuelan football world to know that what you have is not just something special, but it's something that it can be appealing. You just have to make it appealing. You know, if you constantly believe that your league is inferior to anyone else, like then it's, then that's reality. But if you don't believe that all it takes is just that one spark to not think that, and suddenly it doesn't become that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, I, I always feel like I'm on the cusp of being able to do something like that. And I think, yeah. it will happen. I think it will happen in time. But, like, I don't know if you, I don't know if you follow USL. I, I, I don't even know who you support. Who do you support? Do you have a, an American club? Uh, not really. No, I don't really. So when it comes to Emma, so USL, I was following for a very long time when the New York Cosmos were active and then the Cosmos, yeah. there's, we don't know what's going on with the New York Cosmos. So that was my focal point for USL uh, for a while. Then also uh, Paolo Maldini had owned Miami before David Beckham's into Miami. He had owned Miami FC and Alessandro Nesta was managing there. So I thought that was really cool. Uh, Antonelli, who also played, my favorite club is AC Milan. Let uh-huh. put that out there. So, you know, so the, I, when the Cosmos like kind of disappeared, Miami kind of became my USL team, but I don't really sub- watch nearly enough or follow nearly enough. Uh, when it comes to MLS, I'm indifferent about both New York teams. Um, 
I enjoy the atmosphere. I love going. It's great. I when New York City FC won the MLS Cup a couple of years ago, I thought that was super cool. But I don't think there's ever going to be a team that I love will have that passion that I have for Milan. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, like when it comes to Premier League, like Chelsea, I really like because of their Italian background for many years, whether it was coaches and players. Uh, you talked about having, you know, in Venezuela, you have the people have two teams. They have the the, the wife and then the mistress team. My mistress team, I guess, would be Palermo because that's where my father is from. So and they're in City B now. Uh, so it's. But when it comes to soccer in the Americas or in America. Yeah, you know, I'm I, I don't thumb my nose at it. It's just, yeah. you know, it's. But it's uh, but it's something that, you know, it, I think it still can be appealing. I think it also, you know, you can get a kid out of college in America and say, hey, look, go play in Venezuela. You can sit on a bench on a USL team or you could be in a starting lineup. Yeah. In a yeah. South American club. And that's like, I mean, if I'm that kid, it's like, like I want to play, man. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was saying like this, like this sort of the way that you were saying earlier, like, um, you know, just a couple of minutes ago. It's like, it's it's a it can be attractive. How do you make it attractive? Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, like, this isn't propaganda or me like trying to sell a dream to persuade someone to do something that's not a good idea. The reality is, if you're so one of the league rank, there's two league rankings that I use. One is the the FIFA affiliated International Football Federation of History and Statistics. They say Venezuela is the fiftieth. Best first division because they only rank the first divisions. Venezuela is the 50th best first division in the world, top 50. Um, Interestingly, MLS is not in their top 50. Um, Second ranking um, that I use, um, which is uh, is used to inform gamblers, and some people say, "Really? Why would you use that?" Well, look at the football data revolution at the moment. Where did it start? With gambling. Who owns Brentford? A gambling firm. Who owns some of the, um, well, the same, but smarts? Who owns some of the data producing firms? It all began with gambling. Right. They knew before, in the same way that the baseball knew before football, they know that you can study the numbers. And although it's not always right, it's very predictable in a Money way. Ball. So, yeah. So another another form I use is a, is a gambling table. And that has the Venezuelan League ranked... Um, about 10 places to 15 places below MLS, almost always. They update the table four times a year, but just below English League One, the third tier, mm-hmm. and quite a bit above English League Two. But, you know, in general, slots in between English League One and English League Two. So the way I, the way I see it is if you've got a young English player who particularly if they've got like a Premier League or a Championship Academy background, so i.e. very good formation, very good football development through their teenage years, but, you know, get dropped and don't get that first Premier League deal or get the first Premier League deal and not a renewal and they drop down and some drop really far down and it's really hard to get back up no matter how good these players are. Um, You've got two choices or perhaps one of three choices. In England, you can play perhaps at national league level, conference level, which is um, tier five you're miles away from ever playing Premier League football again. You get this, you get the amazing stories like Jamie Vardy, but they're amazing for a reason. They're rare. Right. So you play conference level 
or maybe League Two, and you're miles away from from playing for in the Premier League, let alone playing in Europa League or Champions League. But you've got the level to go and play in South America and play for a top team who are going to be playing Copa Libertadores group stages. So you're going to play six games against continental opposition. That might just so happen to be River Plate or Boca Juniors or Millonarios or Nacional. You have one good season in Venezuela or two good seasons in Venezuela where you kill it and you're in the Copa Libertadores. Like Samson Akinula, the, the Beninese Nigerian, first year in Venezuela, finished top scorer, 18 goals. Um, five, six months later, get signed by Zamalek, the biggest club in Egypt, for over a million dollars. Or you get players in Venezuela who get signed by MLS clubs for a similar price. Mm-hmm. Now, what would you rather do? Would you rather stay in League Two and never be, uh, never reach the Premier League, never play Champions League? Or you could come here, play Copa Libertadores football and know that if you have one or two great seasons, you might get attention back in Europe you'll almost certainly get attention in MLS and then you're back in a country where English is your first language that pays very well, which is a booming, growing, developing league. And I was in a similar situation at the beginning of the year because I.F. Sterling has gone to Tormenta in USL 1, finished their top scorer. I think he got 18 goals. Um, Tormenta win their first ever USL 1 title. Um, And he's a really good player. He was at Tottenham Hotspur. Mauricio Pochettino rated him very highly. He made his debut in the Champions League, played a game in the Cup. Um, and he's still only, I think, 24. And wow. he is good enough. When this goes out in January, things may have already changed. But he is good enough to play in MLS. Um, not many players go. I'm aware not many players go from USL 1 up into MLS. Right. But foreigner, you can also be the exception. And this kid is playing way below his level in USL 1, way below his level. Um, you know, he was at Tottenham a year ago. He's been on loan in League One to the Scottish Premier League. He's done really well. A player like that at the beginning of the year, I couldn't get interest in Venezuela in him. And then they saw him go to USL One. And this is a player that was at Tottenham. But they're apprehensive because he's English. They're apprehensive because he was earning big money at Tottenham, probably. They're apprehensive because he doesn't speak Spanish. And then throughout the season, people in Venezuelan football have said, how's Sterling doing? He's doing really well. Oh, he's top scorer. Can you get us, can you get us a player like Sterling? Um, so I think it's just a matter of time. Um, it is, but- you know, you got to also do the Jose Mourinho trick. The Jose yeah. Mourinho trick when he got Tammy Abraham to Roma was, Tammy, you can sit on a bench in the cold, rainy days of London, or you can come play in the sunshine in Rome. Take your pick. And that's how Tammy Abraham was sold on Roma. Beautiful. Um, so yeah, it, it's about selling it, man. And I think what you're doing is, is really great, you know, and I'm, I'm really excited to see where it goes and I can't wait to keep following. I want to just switch, uh, tracks real quick. So we are, we're talking, we've been talking about Caracas, which is the most successful club in Venezuela with 12 first division titles. They're, they were runners up in 2021, but as we speak, you are also a huge supporter of the saints of Southampton. Yeah. The Saints this year are the complete opposite of Caracas. They are flirting with relegation as we speak. Uh, what happened, especially this season, and how did also your fandom with Southampton come about? Um, yeah. Uh, well, I'll start with how did it come about. Um, I said earlier I've got perhaps extreme views on on football fandom, but um, you know I was I was I was born into it, um, which I think I'm not going to say sorry for. I think is how it should be. Yeah. Like. Um, I think if I, I was born, I was born in Southampton, 
my dad was already a Southampton fan. That's who you should support. Um, I think like maybe if if you you know for argument's sake, you know, born in Manchester or born in London because your your parents went there for work, but your parents are from Southampton, you're entitled to support Southampton in the same way that if your parents are from Italy, you're entitled to an Italian passport. Mm-hmm. I don't like this thing where people are supporting clubs from miles away in other countries. Like you're, you're a supporter. That's fine. You're supporting the brand. You're paying in. You're a paying customer. But I don't see that the same as fandom. I don't think you're ever going to have the same experience of football as a fan, as someone that lives and breathes that city on a daily basis. If I live in Caracas for the rest of my life and I go, I have a season to get every year for the rest of my life, I would never call myself a Caracas fan. Wow. Because I could never experience what it is to be Caracanio, what it is to be from Caracas, and what it is for that club to be inherent in you in the same way that a Caracas-born Caracas fan that literally has it in their blood can. I don't think so. Perhaps wow. my daughter, they came here at such a young age, like such a young age. And if they go on, like my daughter's four in January, she wants to start playing football. Um, and at four, she can start playing at Caracas. She can have that experience because she potentially is going to live and breathe that that way of life. But for me, that's the difference between a supporter and a fan. If you if you support um, if you support like many Venezuelans do here, you support Barcelona or Real Madrid. That's great. You're a supporter, but for me, you're not a fan. Um, wow. My opinion, like I'm not policing what people do. <laughs> no, it's an interesting look at. It. I never, I never once gave it a second thought. I, I, you got the gears in my head going, man. All right. Um. So yeah, I support that. I'm, I am a fan, and I support Southampton. Um. And I, you know, as a kid, um, I, I think I got my first Saint shirt when I was eight or nine. My dad, my first ever football shirt was a Juventus Del Piero shirt. I have no idea why. My dad got it. For Look, I'll get, I'll, you get a pass on Del Piano, but your first being a Juve shirt. I mean, that's just, I think we end the podcast here and it's over. <laughs> and we're done. Thank you for your time. I, I think I, I think my dad got it for me because it was probably, it was definitely fake. Um, <laughs> All right, fine. And that's real. <laughs> and then eventually I got a Saint shirt and I was like, I knew I was like, it was wrapped up. It was a present. I think it was my birthday. Um, and I just knew it was going to be a Saint shirt because I've been asking for a Saint shirt for ages not just weeks like a long like a year or more and my dad had always said which they are in england my dad had always said you know they're so expensive right. annual it's only going to fit you for a couple of months blah 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 and then um i have no apologies for it i was a child i was thinking like a child um but i opened it and it was this the previous season shirt and i was like i was sad i was an eight-year-old that wanted the same shirt and i got last year's shirt um but yeah i just i I was born in 94, I'm 28, so like my 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 first like sort of living memory of a full Saint season, because when you're that age, it's hard to concentrate on a nine-month-long season, um, was the 2002-2003 season, mm-hmm. um, which I think probably sticks in my mind for another reason, because we got to the FA Cup final. And um, I remember my dad um, telling me years later, he told me at the time, he got offered a ticket to go to the final with his friends. And um, at the time, he told me, no, it was just too expensive. I didn't go. And then years later, he told me the reason I didn't go is because I only got offered one ticket. And if I went, I wanted to go with you. I wanted to go with you. Because when Saints got to the FA Cup final in 1976, when my dad was 12, 
his dad, who wasn't a Saints fan, he was um, a Real Madrid fan. He was born in Mallorca, supported Real Madrid, which is why my dad supports Barcelona, by the way, just to <laughs> piss off his dad. Um, my, my dad's dad in 76 got offered a ticket to the final and went, and it broke my dad's heart. Mm. Um, so my dad stayed at home and we watched the game on TV. Um, so that was 2003. And then two years later, Saints got relegated from the Premier League and we didn't get back until 2012. We ended up slipping down to the third division. And I loved those years. My my favourite years as a Saints fan was from 2009 to 2014, that five-year journey when we went from bottom of League One on minus 10 points um, because we'd gone into administration mm-hmm. to finishing sixth in the Premier League um, under uh, or seventh in the Premier League under Ronald Koeman in 2000. Well, no, Ronald Koeman was 2015-16, but 2014-16. Uh, with Pochettino, that, that five-year journey, um, and then we qualified for Europa League two successive seasons with Ronald Koeman. That five-year journey was great because I went to literally every home game in that time. At the end, um, and the Ronald Koeman years, 15 and 2016, as a season ticket holder, um, but from 2009 to 2014, I was a ball boy at the club. Um, so I was, I, and I was a ball boy for the away team dugout. And my cousin, who's the same age as me, was the ball boy for the home team dugout. Um, and like, we just so many great memories from that time. Like when we, we went one nil up against Man United in the FA Cup when we were in League One. And I ran, it's on TV, I ran across the dugout, past Sir Alex Ferguson, like into the arms of my cousin. Um, you know, we had the derby against Portsmouth, um, which we drew when we were um, in the championship. And I remember my best mate was a ball boy the other side of me. And, um, you know, when we scored, he's like six foot four. He's huge, uh, even like when he was a kid. Um, and he was like up in front of the away fans with his arms, like, you know, giving it the big, you know, do one. And I just had so many great memories in those times. Um, in recent years, uh, and I think it's been exaggerated in the past 18 months now I live in Venezuela, um, I've had a real disconnect from the, the club. Um, I love my city. And it is probably... It's probably actually unearthed some of the root causes of my fandom of Southampton. Like, I love my city. I'm so proud of where I'm from. I love Southampton. Um, and I, I love the, 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 I love the fact that the club is a big part of the city. Um, but since 2017, um, my, my interest and my connection with the club has gone mm-hmm. way down. I think because of ownership, we had Chinese owners who, were just so disinterested in, in the way they ran the club. Um, and also prior to that, we'd had a fairly progressive identity. Um, progressive not as in forward thinking, but as in there was progression in our right. idea and growing as a club. And we were growing an identity from Adkins when we had Les Reed as director of football. Our scouting was, you know, very envied in the Premier League. You know, Liverpool, just whoever we signed, they'd signed two years later off of us. You know, we were bringing players like Sadio Mane to the Premier League, Dusan Tadic to the Premier League, who then went and killed it with Ajax. Uh, Graziano Pelle, buddy. Come on, yeah. that beautiful haircut, you know? Exactly. <laughs> Pelle was, but he's probably, he was, he was the, our last good number nine. Yeah. Like, last good number. Oh, Danny Ings. Sorry, Danny Ings. Yeah. But Pelle was like our last, um, our last great nine. And um, that then disappeared because when Koeman left, um, Although Pochettino's football and Koeman's football uh, was very different, um, there were still like core elements to our, our identity. When Claude Puel arrived, the football changed. It stagnated. That year was boring. People go on about how we reached the League Cup final that year 
and we finished eighth in the Premier League. But on the final day of the season, we could have finished as low as 15th if it was that close. Wow. And he then got sacked. Like, you know, the club sort of perhaps listened to the fans or also agreed the football was incredibly dull. But then we, after Puel, we basically got every single big decision wrong. Um, and we're now in a new ownership, Serbian owners, and everyone at the beginning was quite excited about that because they're like Sports Republic, their name came in, they bought us, they wanted a multi-club ownership model, which I think a lot of modern fans are, you know, envious of or want because of the City Group, because of Red Bull. Um, and we brought in the guys from Brentford as well, the um, the, the Danish guy, right. and I can't, I can't remember his name, um, Ankerson, and the English guy whose name I, I can't remember at all. And Brentford have had a really exciting few seasons. Their recruitment model's been spot on. They've been playing nice football. We're thinking, oh, okay, they're going to like instill this in Southampton. We'll get a bit of what we're about back. Um, and it hasn't played out like that. We, we got backing in the summer and we made a lot of good signings. Um, but these signings are like young projects that maybe some are Premier League ready, some are, gonna, some are already quality and others are going to need a few years. But we know and we're sort of, just that's what's become, that's what, Southampton's always been a selling club in the past 10 years. It's become really strong. We know that they're going to be gone in two or three years. It's hard to grow an attachment with with any of these players. Um, and we've not had barely any kids come through the academy and have much success. Like the last one was like James Wall Prowse, who's now like 27. He's been with us for a long time now. He's been with us for like 11 years. He's our captain. Um, I, I think the World Cup squad, England World Cup squad is being announced like any minute. Hopefully he's in it because um, he's an academy kid but then even even with him he was born in Portsmouth he he which is our, our biggest rivals uh, the next city along um, so even that feels not entirely wholesome um, and we've just uh, this week we've sacked Ralph Hassenhutl who was you know one of the longest serving managers in the Premier League but we'd lost his way with him as well uh, and it's just now I think a lot of Saints fans agree that we're just a bit directionless at the moment and it I, I feel like we're staring relegation in the face. And I think a lot of fans will say that it's been obvious for like two years, maybe three years. And we just feels like we've done nothing about it. Um, but I, I love, love Southampton, even though I feel disconnected from the club at the moment, doesn't stop me from getting up at like 6.30 in the morning in Venezuela to start my weekend watching Saints get battered at 7am. Now time for a coffee break. Curva Mundial is sponsored by Mod Cup Coffee in Jersey City. But you can get it anywhere in the world from ModCup.com. Mod Cup, drink modern coffee. Use code MUNDIAL for 10% off your first order. This leads us right now into the final part of the podcast. It's three rapid fire questions, uh, and they pertain to Southampton. If your club could bring back one retired player to the team, alive or dead, Former player, this is. Who would it be and why? I, um, I think this is linked to my generation, um, inevitably. But I think also linked to what's happened in recent years. Um, the obvious answer for many people would be Matthew Letizia. But firstly, he was a bit before my time. And secondly, he's gone a bit Alex Jones on us in recent years. Uh, suddenly a massive raving conspiracy theorist. Um, so I would say Ricky Lambert, because okay. he guy that fired us to the Premier League, uh, was with us from 2009 to 2014, the years I say are my best. 
I remember celebrating his his first touch in an England shirt was a goal, a header against Scotland. And I and it was a friendly, it was meaningless. And I remember celebrating that like it was a goal that won Saints the FA Cup. So Ricky Lambert, he's your classic number nine, 20 goals a season, but he was also so skillful and he was just iconic with that that rise back to the top. For sure. Money is not an option. You have more money than PSG and City combined. If the Saints could sign one player today, who would it be and why? Um, again, I think this is quite insightful of how I see football. Um, you know, maybe a, a more commercial fan would say someone like Kavavinga because you're going to get 12 years of him and he's world-class or Haaland for the same reason. But um, I'd pay any money to have Messi in a Saints shirt for a season. I would love, I would love Messi. Um, and because he's still elite, he's still world-class. Um, yeah, Messi, Messi. Right. I have to put it the B clause. I know you said one, but yeah. I also absolutely love Zlatan Ibrahimovic. And I know you're an AC fan, so like, I love Zlatan. That's my, I mean, what I, I am a firm believer and it has been proven time and time and again that if you are a club legend and leave that club, you should never return to that club. Yeah. But I am now convinced that Zlatan Ibrahimovic is an alien and rules don't apply to him because it's because of him. Yeah. Playing or not playing that Milan won a Scudetto last season. Uh-huh. And Milan has the winning philosophy and fighting philosophy that we lacked for nearly a decade. And that yes. is that starts with him. And it is no coincidence. We've seen Ronaldo go back to Madrid. I mean, I'm sorry. We've seen Ronaldo go back to Manchester United and it has not worked out. We've seen uh, when Kaká returned to Milan, it wasn't great. Again, time and time and again, when a legend goes back to a team, it doesn't really work out. Yeah, Him, he is the exception to every rule. And I don't care if he's got one toe and one leg he's still probably better than most and if not he will fire the people up with you know two legs and ten toes to go and play the rest absolutely love him love him and finally finally what has been your favorite moment as a fan um the 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 day saints um the day saints secured their promotion back to the premier league yeah, it was great. And I was there as a ball boy, so I was straight onto the pitch at full time. I even had stupidly, because if I still had it, it would probably be like my most cherished possession. I I had I got one of the match balls. Um, you know, you know, people say a match, but you very rarely have one match ball. Like you know, back back then you had like balls around the pitch, one goes off, another comes on. So I got one of the match balls and I was running a men's football team at the time and I had the stupid idea of using it as our match ball. And it went into um, it went into a field, and and we just could not find it. So I spent ages trying to find it, and I just could not find it. Um, so yeah, that would have been my most cherished possession. Instead, pro- somebody probably has it now and doesn't even realize it's important. <laughs> oh, I can't think of a better way to end it, Jordan. This has been by far and large one of my favorite episodes. I feel like, like I can spend another ten hours just talking with you. Uh, but I think I'm going to have to do this in Caracas and come to and we can go for coffee and we just hang out and just continue this discussion. No, the door's open. We got a spare room. Like, oh. I, I say people, but I mean it like 
come to Venezuela, experience it for yourself, come and see some football, more than welcome. Follow us on Twitter at Curva Mundial Pod and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.